0: Mother's Day moms, we are grateful for you, uh, very thankful for you, and we're glad you're here for those of you who are mothers that are here with us, or you're across the hall in Theater 14, or right here in this room or watching online, thank you, and happy Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day to my mom, thank you so much for tuning in, for those of you who are going to watch online, and for those of you who are here, and and some of you are here today, and I want to acknowledge, I know today's a tough day for some of you. Maybe because you lost mom or various other reasons and you're brave for being here today. And so thank you for that. And I just hope, I hope you've been blessed already. I hope those of you who are moms, I hope that I'm the 50th person to tell you happy Mother's Day today, that people have already blessed you, hear the testimonies of people um, trusting God. Hopefully it makes you want to trust him more. And we're going to open up his word. Here in just a couple moments, but uh, I just want to let you know, moms, you're very special to us. You make a significant contribution to our lives, to our communities, uh, to this church, and we couldn't do without you. So we're grateful for you. And uh, a couple things: if you are a mom and I've never met you before, we're doing Discovering Southbridge today. Love to meet you. So I'll be in a blue tent, or under a blue tent—not like a camp out tent, but there's a blue like tailgate tent that's underneath the awnings outside today. On your way out, I'd love to meet you. And if you're not a mom, but you have a mom, uh, I'd love to meet you too. So anybody is invited to Discovering South Bridge if you want to know more about our church, if we've never met before. Would love to do that. And then also, because today's Mother's Day, we're given a special gift. And it's not just for moms. Anybody who's here wants to do it, even if you're all by yourself today and you want to go out underneath the uh, the banner that says Happy Mother's Day and take a picture and send it to your mom, you can feel free to do that. We're doing family portraits today. And so you can go out. If, if you're heading out normally, you don't go over towards Bridge Kids. It's on that side. So you'll have to go over to that side a little bit and you'll see it. There's a light over it and it says Happy Mother's Day. And uh, we want to let you get a family portrait today that you can share with someone else or have other people in it with you. But because we're doing family portraits, portraits today, I wanted to give you a few tips about family portraits, because family portraits can go very poorly if you don't follow these tips, and so with the help of a website called Awkward Family Photos, I want to share with you a few tips on things you might want to avoid today, and so some people get the idea, they're going to do a family picture, that everybody should dress the same, I just want to tell you, matchy matchy can be a bad idea, and so exhibit A, right there. But you may see this picture and then respond, swing the pendulum the other direction, and try to diversify. I want to let you know that can go poorly as well. And so we'll show you some diverse pictures here. We've got a little bit of country, a little rock and roll over here. The wholesome women in the front and the punk rock in the back. I bet they regret that. I don't know them, but I'm just pretty confident they do. And some of you might be into photography. I know I saw one of my friends who takes pictures on the way in today, and I know some of you are photographers, some of you, and that's your job, what you do. And so it can be boring to see some of these still shots. I understand that. And so you want to see some action. Be careful. Action shots can be dangerous. I have no idea what happened there. I'm not endorsing dropping kids on the ground. Please don't email me about that. I want you to know too, just a little lesson on working with the, the camera, is just because you can see the lens, doesn't mean the lens can see you, and so we'll pop up this next picture, it may take you a second, look underneath mom, there we go, so just because you can see the camera, doesn't mean the camera can see you. There are a couple of rules we do have today as well, um, one, no animals in the pictures, no theming your picture, and then also no special talents exhibited, please. The karate dad, really? Dad, come on. Like, what do they say later after that? That is a chicken in that one picture, by the way. And we see multiple skills being put on exhibit. And I do want to let everyone know today that I'm sure your hair looks awesome. I know it's kind of humid out there, and so it's a rough hair day for some. But no matter what, in 20 years, your hair is going to look like this to you. Today, it doesn't look like that. When you pull the picture back out, you're going to say, It was in style. I know it was then. And see, one of the difficulties with a portrait, a picture is that you can make some decisions in the moment that were actually right in the moment. Because of trends, or because things change, then you can regret that decision later. Today we're going to look at a sermon that's going to be titled, A Portrait of a Godly Woman. And here's the thing. Ladies, I understand this, that you can find a million blogs that will tell you how to be great at everything. And moms, I'm sure there's a bunch of books and blogs, there's probably literally more than millions of books and blogs out there to tell you how to be a soccer mom, a super mom, a stay-at-home mom, a work-outside-the-home mom, all those types of things. But here's all the books and all the blogs, the things they share with you, they'll change. A decade from now, the things that they tell you to do now are going to be different than they are today. And some of you, might not even be a decade, it might be a week, it might be in uh, you know, all the trends that come and go. But what we're going to talk about today are some unchanging truths about what it is to be a godly woman. And we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 31. If you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to join me in the book of Proverbs, in the middle of the Bible. It's the last chapter in that book, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31. And let me just say this as you turn there. I know that when you heard I was going to be in Proverbs chapter 31 today, a few of you women, your hearts probably sank. Oh, we're going to look at that woman. And you know the pressure that comes with seeing Proverbs chapter 31. In fact, I was thinking about it this week. I remember... The very first message I preached at Southbridge on a Mother's Day was in 2007. This church launched in 2007. 2007, Mother's Day, preached a sermon. It wasn't from Proverbs chapter 31. A woman in the second row came to me right after the message and said, Pastor, thank you for that message, and thank you so much that it wasn't from Proverbs chapter 31. Because she didn't want the pressure that comes with the Proverbs chapter 31 woman and the picture that we get of that woman. It can be intimidating, it can be overwhelming. I understand that. And if you're feeling that way today, I want to let you know. We have eight years of archives of messages you can go back and listen to that haven't been from Proverbs chapter 31. This is the first time. This will be my ninth Mother's Day message at Southbridge. It's the first one that's come from Proverbs chapter 31. And you may be interested to know the context. It's actually not written to women. If you read Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 1, it says this. The sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him. These are words from a mom... To her son about the kind of woman he should desire. And what we get are some advice that he's given by his mom in verses 2 through 9. And then verses 10 through 31 is a poem, a Hebrew poem, that's written actually as a Hebrew acrostic, giving all, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And in each one, there's a, a statement about what that woman should be like. And it's all summarized at the end. And so if you have your Bibles, jump with me to Proverbs chapter 31. I'm going to start reading of verse 28 and give you the end of the picture, the summary of this woman. And then we'll come back and we'll go through, starting in verse 10, some of the rest of this proverb. But a portrait of a godly woman hears words from a mom to her son. After describing her and all these other verses, in verse 28 it says, Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. In verse 29, Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Why? Verse 30, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned. And let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Oftentimes we think as Christians it's wrong to praise a person. All praise goes to God. We don't them getting a big head or whatever. Here three times we're told of this woman being praised in the Bible and its right to do. Her children call her blessed. Her husband praises her. The whole community, in fact. The city gate, verse 31, will praise this woman. But why? What did it say? Well, she surpasses all these other women, but there's many women who do good things. And so what is it about her? It's not her charm. You know what charm is? Charm's that lady at, your, at the office, guys, who lets you know she's available. If you're interested. Beauty? Beauty's not bad, but it says here that beauty is fleeting. You know what beauty is? Beauty's that haircut you had in 1980 that was really big. It was attractive at that time. People were drawn to that at that time, but times have changed. And beauty goes away. Outward beauty. What we're talking about is the kind of beauty that Peter talks about in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, he says that we shouldn't just be adorned with outward things to make us look beautiful, but our beauty should come from our character, from within. And that's what we're told here in this passage. It's a woman who fears the Lord is what makes her stand out. It's her fear of God that's the foundation for why she should be a woman that we praise. It's why it's the foundation for her being a godly woman. The fear of the Lord is the foundation for a godly woman. And so everything else flows from that. The foundation for her is the fear of God. You can fake a bunch of the other stuff that we'll look at in verses 10 through 28. But you can't fake the fear of the Lord. It's foundational for everything else that happens. And so what is it? What does it mean to fear God? Well, it's a staple statement throughout the scripture of a follower of God. A lot of times when we think of fear, we think of terror. Like we're scared, like a scary movie type scared. And now let me tell you, there is a place for that with God. When you find out you're going to hell, that's scary. And you should be scared. should be terrorized by that idea. When you turn your back on God and you're running from him in disobedience, there should be terror that you know of the wrath of God and that it may come out on you. And if you're not a Christian, then that would be hell. If you are a Christian, it's his discipline. That's scary. That's not what we're talking about here. And so many of us have a hard time with this concept because we don't really have a good word to translate what's being talked about in the scriptures as the fear of the Lord. It's a reverential awe for God. It's people who've had an experience, an encounter with the power of God, like we saw some testimonies today, and it's changed their lives, and now they live with a worshipful spirit towards God, a spirit of worship, a spirit of awe. It's used synonymously throughout the scripture with wisdom, with walking by faith. That's what the fear of the Lord is. In fact, that's what all the Proverbs are about. And so we get it here at the very end of the book of Proverbs, talking about this woman that she fears God. That's the foundation of her life. But if you go to the beginning of the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, what you find out is the whole book of proverbs is about this fear of the lord it says in proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and discipline who's the fool in the bible the fool is the one who says in their heart there is no god they may profess with their mouth that there's a god but they practically live as if god doesn't exist and they know what's best The beginning of not doing that is the fear of God, a reverential awe towards him. And what does the fear of God do in our lives? If you just go through the Proverbs, let me share with you some things that the Proverbs say. So you might want to take notes. I'm not going to read all these verses, but I'll share them with you. The fear of the Lord makes us repentant. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. The fear of the Lord makes us decisive against sin. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. Causes us to be stable. We're steady in our ways. See, some people, when they think of fear, they think of anxiety. As if someone's walking around, they're f- afraid of God, meaning, uh, if I mess up, he's going to zap me. If I do the wrong thing, bad stuff's going to happen. He's going to get me. He's going to punt. These are, and they think of fear like that. No, no, no. The fear of the Lord actually makes us stable. And that's in Proverbs Chapter 14, verse 26. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27, the very next verse, the fear of the Lord refreshes our souls, causes us to be humble. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33 makes us be satisfied in him. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 23. If you think fearing God is a bad thing and you think it is a terror, then it's going to be a surprise to you know that Jesus actually was said to have delighted in the fear of the Lord. It's Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Speaking of the promised Messiah who delights in the fear of the Lord, has a connection with him that then results in a worshipful heart. And you see it of people throughout Scripture. You look at Abraham. Abraham, the father of our faith, is a man who feared God. But why? Was it because he left his land, forsook false gods, left his land without even knowing where he was going? Nope. Was it because he believed a promise when he was 75 years old that he was going to have children even though he didn't have any children at that point, that he'd have children and that God would bless the world through his line? No. It's in Genesis chapter 22 that we see when he does his greatest act of faith, greater than those two things I just mentioned to you, where he's willing to give his son back to God, where the Lord says to him, now I know you fear the Lord. Not that you're terrorized of me, but that you live and you see it flows out of you. The way that you live your life comes from that foundation, that staple statement, which really means you're following me, that you're walking by faith, that you live in wisdom according to what I tell you to do, not even what seems right to you. And the fear. It looks like we talked about the woman last week in Luke chapter 7, the woman who was washing Jesus' feet. And Jesus says she loves much because she's been forgiven much. And so what's your story? Are you connected with God? Do you hesitate to come up and share testimony because you don't want to get in front of a bunch of people? Or is there not anything there? For those of you who know the power of God then out of that should flow the fear of God, which is reverential awe because you've been connected to that power. Do you know the power of the resurrection? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He made you alive in Christ. That power is the foundation for the fear of God. And the fear of God is the foundation for the godly woman. Do you know the power of reconciliation? Do you know the power of forgiveness? Do you know the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? of you know the power of God unto salvation? Do you not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus because of the power of God that will change, that will save? You've been saved. That's the foundation for the godly woman. That's the fear of the Lord. Am I talking about you, ladies? When I talk about someone who fears God, who do you think of? Men, do you think of your wife? If so, praise her. Guys, you're single, you're dating somebody. Is that the girl you're dating? You think of her? If so, marry that girl. And I'm serious because she's rare. That's what the scriptures tell us. That she's rare. Go back to the end of the chapter here. Verse 29. Proverbs chapter 31 says, Many women do noble things. There are a lot of good ladies. There are a lot of people who go to church. There are a lot of people who read their Bible. There are a lot of people who pray. You can do a lot of this stuff. But if you're lacking this foundation, it's not what we're talking about. Many do noble things. But you surpass them all. Verse 29. Verse 30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That is the foundation. And so jump back to verse ten and we'll talk about the characteristics. There are a bunch of characteristics here, we'll only look at a few. But in verse ten it says, A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. In other words, she's rare. They didn't have diamonds then? Or probably say she's worth far more than the most precious diamonds. Who can find her? The question's not asked because she doesn't exist. The question is asked because she's rare. It makes me think of when uh, last year my wife and I took our daughters to an art museum because they had been studying specific works of art all year long, and so for a special trip we wanted them to see the stuff they had been looking at online and in books. We wanted them to see it in person, and so we took them to this museum, and uh, we didn't tell them how to behave at a museum. We, you know, we've taught them manners and things along those lines. And they'd seen these works of art. And we're going to see, like, Rembrandts, Picassos, and Van Goghs. And some of you I know are art enthusiasts. I'm not. So I didn't really think to tell them, hey, this is how you should behave. So we got there. And before we got even to some of the, you know, they want to see Starry Night. and They want to see some of these different things. We went into this room with a bunch of Picassos. And my one daughter walks right up in front of all these art enthusiasts, sticks her hand on it because she wants to touch it. It's the real one. And we're just like, no! You know, everyone's looking at us like you unrefined dogs. Bring your kids in here. You know, pull them off to the side. Said, we know you know it, but don't touch it. You know, can't touch any. Why can't she touch that one? We can Touch pictures at our house. I mean, they do <laughs> computer screen. Take that one off the wall. Put a different one on the wall. I'm at Home Goods or wherever you get the pictures at. You can't do that with a Van Gogh. You can't do that with a Picasso because it's rare, and so it's treated differently. She should be praised. Guys, if you're dating a gal, and this is what I'm going to describe to you in this passage, is that gal, you should marry her because she's rare. I'm not kidding around. If you're dating a gal and that's not that gal, I'd suggest get a different gal. If you're married to a woman and she's not this woman, then it's your responsibility to help her become this woman. It's not get another gal. And so what do we see to be true about her? Well, her foundation is the fear of the Lord. That's foundational to everything else that's said in this passage. But then we see some characteristics. The first one we see is that she is a committed woman. A godly woman is a committed woman. Look at verse 11 with me. Right after it says, a woman of noble character who can find she's worth far more than rubies. She is rare. It says this, her husband has full confidence in her. And he lacks nothing of value. And it goes on to talk about she brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. What you found is a good thing. She's a rare thing. She's a committed woman. And what we'll see in verses 12 through 18 is all the things that describe how committed she is. Now, how do we know she's committed? We'll go back to that phrase in verse 11 where it says the husband has full confidence in her. Some of you might have the English Standard Version or New American Standard Version if you brought your own Bible. And in it, it says that she's worthy of full trust. He trusts her fully. She's A trustworthy person. How do you become worthy of trust? How do you get full confidence from someone? You have to have a track record. You have a track record of doing things that would build confidence, then you get full confidence. Not that you don't trust someone as soon as you meet them. You might trust them as far as you can at that moment, but then after a history, after a track record of showing your faithfulness, then people have full confidence, faith in you, trust in you, because you've done it over and over again. And that's what we read about about this woman. Look at it. Some of these things have to do with this specific culture and they're dated. The principles transcend. It says in verse 12, this isn't dated. She brings him harm, not good, all the days of her life. She's committed to her husband. She's a committed woman. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. So she's a hard worker. Does it mean you have to use wool and flax? No. Polyester, and cotton, whatever you use, different things. Stocks and bonds, Whatever. This next verse is interesting. She's like a merchant ship that brings food from afar. I can tell you, my wife's not here today or right now. She's here for service. I have never said to her, baby, you look like a merchant ship. <laughs> she says, we're going on a date. How do I look? Oh, like a, mm, mm, like a merchant ship. You know, I've never done that before. But it's a compliment here. What does it mean? It means she's resourceful. She brings things into the home that you... Can't just get from within the household. And there was no online shopping at this time period, by the way. She's a resourceful woman. And it blesses the home because she's committed to the home. She's committed to her husband. She's committed to this hard work. You see, repeatedly, she's committed to the hard work. Verse 15, she gets up while it's still dark. And she provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. And so, ladies, you may want to point out, she had help here in this passage. But she blesses them too. They're not just there to serve her. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Again, we see hard work. Laziness is never spoken of positively in the book of Proverbs. And here, think about the work that's involved. So she considers a field. She's got discernment. She buys the field, but it's more than just buying the field. She does it out of her earnings that she's made, and she plants a vineyard. And how do you plant a vineyard? Well, you got to clear all the stones off the field. You've got to get all the weeds and all the vines out. And you dig a hole for the vineyard. You plant it. You cultivate it. And then you've got a crop. There's a lot of hard work. She sits about her work vigorously. She's a hard worker. Her arms are strong for the task. She's got some pipes. Verse 18. She sees that her training is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. And so here we've got a woman who gets up while it's still dark outside. She's still working when it is dark outside. She's a hard worker because she's committed. She's committed to her home. She's committed to her family. She's committed to her husband. She brings him blessing, not harm. Verse 12, she's a committed woman. And what we see is, if you look through the scriptures, any woman that's worth emulating in the scripture is a committed woman. And it wasn't because she was just committed to her husband or committed to her kids or committed to the home, but it comes from the foundation of the fear of the Lord. She's committed to her God. And what you see is that any woman in the scriptures worth emulating, sacrificed and served. Any woman that's worth emulating the scriptures, sacrificed and served. It's one of the reasons why this woman is so intimidating. It's because she works so hard. It's sacrificial. She loses sleep, her own interests, the things that she may want to do. And she serves for the benefit of others, whether it's her servant girls, her husband, her family. She's committed because of her commitment to God. And you think about it. Go through the scriptures. There's women that you don't want to emulate. Jezebel comes to mind. There's women you do want to emulate. Jacobet, remember her? Do you know that name, Jacobet? It's Moses' mom who sacrificed and ended up saving a nation. Think about Mary. More people probably name their daughters after Mary than any other woman name in the Bible. And so Mary... Is this woman, the angel Gabriel, comes to her and says, you're going to give birth to the Savior of the world. Yeah, that should be great news. Oh, it means that you're going to be accused of adultery. Who knows what your fiancé is going to say. Your whole community is going to look down on you and you're saying goodbye to any dreams that you possibly have. And what does she say? May it be to me as you have said. I'm willing to sacrifice for the sake of serving so that the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, can come and deliver his people. And there's lots of godly women throughout the, the scriptures that we could talk about. But this passage actually talks about one. It's pointing to one woman in the Bible, and it's not Mary, and it's not Jacobed, and it's certainly not Jezebel. It's the woman Ruth. Proverbs chapter 31 actually points us to Ruth. There's a statement in verse 10 that I've already read to you, a wife of noble character who can find. There's only one woman in the Bible that's called a wife or woman of noble character. It's Ruth in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 11. The book of Ruth in your Bibles will be found after the book of Judges. That's because we've moved it to the place where, because it starts off talking about in the time of the Judges. So we thought that it would make sense being there, but in the Hebrew Bible, where God actually originally placed it, it was right after Proverbs chapter 31. And so you have Proverbs chapter 31 that describes this woman that we oftentimes talk about. as just poetry. It's just examples. No one can do this. But then we have a real life example in the way that God assimilated and put the scriptures together in the book of Ruth. The only woman who says that she's rare, she's like rubies, who can find her. I'll turn the page. She's on the next chapter. It's Ruth. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, but you can't understand Proverbs chapter 31 without knowing Ruth. It's only four chapters. I encourage you to read it on your own, just to give you an overview of what the book of Ruth is about. It's actually interesting. It's actually about another woman. Her name's Naomi. Ruth stands out because she demonstrates what the book is all about, Hesed. The whole book of Ruth is about one word, a Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed is a hard word for us to translate. We don't have a word for it. Even worse is, especially in our culture, we don't have very many examples of it. Hesed, sometimes translated kindness, sometimes translated loyal love, is God's kind of love. It's a committed love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a serving love. It's a costly love. It's the kind of love that will give one way of itself regardless of the results. It's an unconditional kind of love. That's Hesed, loyal, love, or kindness. And that's what Ruth demonstrates in the book. What ends up happening in the book, if you haven't read it, is this woman named Naomi. She's married to a guy who has a really hard name, so I won't even say it because he dies really quick in the book. So what happens I'm just telling you. That's what happens. So they live in Israel. They're Israelites, uh, of course. Much of the Bible is about the nation of Israel. And so they're in Israel, but there's a famine in the land of Israel. And so they decide to go to Moab. To give you an idea of what Moab is like, it'd be like your weird cousin. Do you got any relatives that are like weird relatives that you don't really want to hang out with, but like Thanksgiving comes, so they have to get invited and if you don't, you are, just so you know. But the, the thing, what ends up happening, we'll just call them Cousin Eddie's. They're the odd relatives that are out there, right? The Moabites are basically the Cousin Eddie's. They moved from their town over to Cousin Eddie's village because there was no food. So they went there to get a job. But then things go bad. And the book of Ruth starts like a terrible country song. Her husband dies. She's got two sons. They're both weak. Neither one of them had children, and they both die. It's really sad. But we can't grasp it because of our culture. We don't understand how desperate of a situation this would be for Naomi. She's an older woman. She's got no grandkids. Her husband's gone, and both of her sons die. To try and help us understand this, there's a guy named Paul Miller who wrote a book, A Loving Life in a Broken World or a a World of Broken Relationships, which is really about Ruth, but then puts it in our context and talks about a bunch of applications. To try and help us understand what Naomi's going through. In in one chapter at the beginning, he gives an analogy of a a business uh, consultant that was doing a survey of American businessmen. Where they give them a hypothetical situation, then ask them a question. The hypothetical situation for these American men was there's three women in a boat. One's your daughter, one's your wife, one's your mom. The boat starts sinking, and you can only save one. Who do you save? Don't ask your husband the answer to this question, ladies. But of American men, 60% chose their daughter, 40% chose their wife, which leaves how many percent for mom? chose mom of American men. Sorry, happy Mother's Day. What? They didn't ask me. Don't, but please. They, They didn't. What would you do? What would you do, guys? Same business consultants ask Saudi men, traditional Near Eastern culture. Same scenario. Three women are a boat. Your daughter, your wife, your mom. Who do you save? Every one of them chose mom. 100% without question Joe's mom. Why? Because there's a mother-son bond in that community that's hard for us to comprehend. Because what happens is daughters, they marry someone else and they move out of the home. Sons, they stay. Even when they get married, they bring the wife into the home. There's a mother-son bond that's hard for us to understand. And Naomi loses her husband. That's terrible. And then both of her sons, she may as well have lost her own life. It's a desperate situation in the book of Ruth. And what happens is that Naomi says, I'm leaving Moab and I'm going back to Israel. She starts heading back to Israel and her two daughters, who by law were required to go with her, that are both Moabite women, start coming with her. And she turns to them and says, "You, you, you can't come with me. May God deal with you ever so kindly. It's the word hesed. May God have committed love to you, but you can't come with me. You need to go back. And then she starts to explain to them, even if I got married today, got pregnant today, because the law would say that you're supposed to marry one of my other sons if my sons die. But even if I got pregnant today and had a child, by the time he was old enough, you'd be barren. You've got no hope with me. You've got no future. You've got poverty and loneliness if you come with me. Go back to a future. Go back to the Moabites. And one of them says yes. And she was free to do so. But Ruth says no way. I'm coming with you. It's Hesed. She says some powerful words. I'm going to read to you from Ruth chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, or 16 and 17. When she's told to go back, she says, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. So your place is my place. Your people are my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. I'm staying in that place. I'm committed to those people. May the Lord deal with me. She calls down a curse on herself. Be it ever so severely. If anything but death separates you and me. That's how committed I am to you, Naomi, Ruth says. "Hesed." She's a committed woman. Think about what she was being told to do. Go back to your Moabite people. Do you know what the Moabites said They worship false gods. And one of the ladies went. How many women will never be Proverbs chapter 31 women because they believe in the American gods, our culture gods? And we don't make statues of them, which is oftentimes what we think of ancient worship, but materialism, self-esteem, outward adornments and beauty, achievements, having everybody else think certain things about you. Those are our gods and our culture. And she was given the opportunity to go back. And what does what Ruth say? No way. I'm with you. I'm committed to you. Your place is my place. Your people are my people. And then that last statement, your God is my God. So even if you die, I'm staying in that place. Let me be buried there. You know why? Because I'm committed to your God. She converted. This is an Old Testament conversion. One Bible scholar tells us about Old Testament conversions, how rare they are. Let me just read you what he says. He says that statement, your people will be my people and your God my God. It's a radical thought because... It signals that Ruth is changing her identity in a world where that was almost inconceivable. The ancient world had no mechanism for religious conversions or change of citizenship. The very notion was unthinkable. Religion and peoplehood define one's ethnic identity, and this could no more be changed than the color of one's skin. What we're seeing when she says those words is a miracle from God where she's being converted and connected to the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. She fears God. That's the foundation. So then you see her live it out and her commitment has said love. She goes with Naomi. Naomi can't give her anything. There's no hope with Naomi. She can't get anything from Naomi. Naomi. There's no future with Naomi. She's going to go to another land. Not only is she sticking with Naomi, she's going to Israel. So not only is she going to be a servant of a woman with no future whose life is basically over, she's a foreigner. And when you understand, I mean, we live in this melting pot place. It's like, all right, well, become a citizen. No, it's different. She'd be the lowest social status you could imagine. But she's committed. The kind of love we're talking about, it's not about affections. It's not about emotions. It's not about you make me happy. It's not about infatuation. We're talking about this is God's kind of love and I'm coming after you even though I don't get anything out of it and it's, I'm committed to you. Women, does that describe you? I think about it in my own life. I'm talking about here in this passage that how rare a woman is like this. Uh, I've shared with you before as a church how in 2011, 2012 uh, I had a terrible bout with anxiety. I was going to a counselor twice a week. Um, ended up using even some medication to try and calm myself down. and uh, It was rough. And I remember one of my greatest fears and my wife knew that I had a, a difficult background before I came to Jesus, and had made a lot of bad decisions. But she didn't know all the details. One of my greatest fears was that she would learn some of the details. I didn't think she'd leave me. I didn't think she'd divorce me. We'd made a commitment, and that wasn't a, an option. Uh, my fear was that she'd find out, and then she'd be done with me in a sense, that we'd live like roommates in the same house, and it would look nice to everyone on the outside, but no one would know there were, really wasn't much relationship on the inside and and some of you live that I'm sorry we offer pastoral counseling my fear was that would happen with us and I remember when my wife found out and I started sharing with her details of dumb things I'd done decisions that had happened and never before that moment had I experienced Jesus in the flesh the way that I did when she extended so much grace it was hesed it's committed love it wasn't about me it wasn't about what I did it wasn't about what I brought to the table she decided to love me To describe you, ladies? Do you know a woman like that? Do you even think? They're rare. It's a committed woman. Not only is she a committed woman, but she's a compassionate woman. Look at the next part of this passage. It comes from the fear of the Lord, it's a commitment to Him. And she was committed to her family, committed to her community, committed to the people that God brings into her life, but then she's also compassionate. Look at what it says in verses 19 and 20. It's poetry talking about her compassion. The imagery is on the hands. And there's a contrast. Notice it here. In her hand, she holds the distaff. Doesn't really matter. It's work. Grasps the spindle with her fingers. The imagery is a closed hand. She's working hard. Verse 20. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Literally, the Hebrew could be translated she opens her palms. And so she works hard. It's not the things that things have just been handed to her, and so it's easy for her to just hand them out. She works hard. She does. She's holding on to the stuff. She's working hard. But when she sees somebody who's needy, a needy person is someone who can't give you anything in return. She opens her palms to them. And that comes from a compassionate heart. She sees a need. She wants to meet the need. And we're talking now beyond the servant girls that are in her house, beyond her kids, beyond her husband, outside the home, to people who don't experience tested love, to people who don't have that. And so what she does is she sees that And because she fears the Lord, and she knows the power of God in her own life, when she sees other people who don't have that, her heart goes out to them. The greatest picture of compassion in the scriptures is Jesus. Jesus, he sees people, and he's moved. Uh, The word that's used there is is his inner bowels actually move when he sees people in pain and he sees their need. Like the widow who's burying her son. And she comes out in the gospels, and Jesus sees her, and his, his compassion moves him. Or when he's at Lazarus, four days after his funeral, and he weeps. His friends in this tomb, people are weeping, and he knows he's about to bring this guy back from a place that's perfect to this place, and he weeps. Or his boat lands, and he looks out, and there's crowds of people that are like sheep without a shepherd. And he sees them, and he's moved. He's got feelings for people outside that can't do anything for him. In fact, everybody who comes into contact with Jesus, you could say, is needy. They all need forgiveness. They all need grace. And there's obviously the people who need to be fed. And there's the people who need to, uh, their eyes to be open. And there's the people who need to be able to walk. And all those things need to happen. But they all need grace. And, and not only can we say that we're all needy that comes to Jesus, but all the people, that he, he's coming and he's actually serving the people that will kill him. So not only that they're not able to give him anything, but they're actually going to harm him. And he opens his palms and allows them to be pierced with nails. So that he can die. And the people that I'm talking about aren't just the people in the Bible. I'm talking about you. It's your sin that nailed him to the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't they don't know. They don't realize what they're doing. That's compassion. Compassion's always costly. A compassionate love always costs something. And for here we see with this woman the sacrifice that she gives in this passage, and she's willing to give to those that she sees in need, even outside of her home. Think about Ruth. She's not getting anything from Naomi. She's going with Naomi, and it's going to cost her greatly. It costs her if she, When she's told, go back to the false gods of Moab, go back to your culture, she's being told, go back, you can get married again. Go back, you can have children. Go back, you can have a future. Go back, there's hope there. And she says, no, oh, I'm committed to you. This isn't about me. It costs me greatly, my future, my hope, but I'm committed to you, because she cares about this woman who's got nothing, Naomi. What about you? Does your love cost you? I don't doubt, moms, that you sacrifice greatly for your kids. Um, You sacrifice greatly probably for your, lots of things happen in your home. But what about others that have needs? That don't know this chesed love. That don't know this committed kind of love. Does God move your heart for them? That's the picture of a godly woman that we see here. I was reading about a woman this week named Amy Carmichael. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She's a missionary. A missionary who ended up going to India. She served there for about 55 years. Her dad died when she was a little girl. And that rocked her world. And she ended up having to take a lot of responsibility on As a result of that, uh, church gal. But realized that God didn't really have her heart. And then through needy people, God started to get her heart. She goes to be a missionary, serves in India for 55 years, never takes a furlough. This is before Skype, by the way, or before Facebook. No real connection back. She goes there. She's forced to connect with these people that are there in India that she's just wanted to bring the gospel to. What ends up happening is a seven-year-old girl comes to her who escaped from a Hindu temple. People would drop off their kids at a Hindu temple and let them become temple prostitutes as a way to try and appease the gods. Sick and twisted. I understand. This girl was there, seven years old. She escaped one night from the the Hindu temple, and she snuck out. Door was unlocked. She goes to Amy's house. Amy doesn't know what to do because if she brings her in, she could be in trouble legally, but she does. And throughout her 55 years, she brings in hundreds of kids. And they call her Amma, Mama. She's a mother to them, even though she's never married and doesn't have kids biologically. These people see her as a mom. You know what she says? Amy Carmichael said this statement. You can always give without loving. Anybody can give. But you can never love without giving. Love always costs something. And a compassionate love will cost you. That's chesed love. But not only is it a compassionate woman, not only is she a committed woman, but she's a courageous woman. Look at the last part of this passage, verse 25. I'll jump down here. Verse 25, she is a courageous woman. Verse 25 says, she is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom. And faithful instruction is on her tongue. That actually in some translations is a kind teaching. It's Hesed. She teaches Hesed. She teaches committed love. She watches over the affairs of her household. Verse 27, it does not eat of the bread of idleness. Again, it's emphasized that she's a hard worker. She's not lazy. That's a poetic way to say it. She's not a lazy woman. And then you get this attribute in verse twenty five. Oftentimes because of our culture, and oftentimes because of a chauvinistic culture, we think, Well, strength, that's a man. Well let me remind you, this is not only in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament, thousands of years ago. She's clothed with strength, strength. And then I love the next line. She can laugh at tomorrow. When she thinks about the unexpected things that could happen. She doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. When she thinks about all the things that could happen the next day. She's not stressed out. She's not worried. What might happen to my kids? What decision might they make? What about our finances? What about... No. She doesn't fear any of that stuff. Do you know why? Foundation. She fears the Lord. When you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. So I tell you, even in my own story, anxiety was an issue. You know what that is? It's a lack of faith. I'm not trusting Him. Because when you fear God... What's the worst that can happen to you when you fear God? somebody going to kill you and you die? Guess what you get? You get to be with him. (laughs) You know what Jesus says to his disciples? He tells his friends, Luke chapter 12. He talks to them about this. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. Then he tells this, but I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. If you're going to be afraid of something, be afraid of God. But let me tell you, when you're afraid of God, you've got nothing else to fear. Think about Ruth. She's the example, the real life example of this woman who said that she can laugh at tomorrow. She's willingly walking into a situation where there's no hope, there's no future. But you know what she has? And your God will be my God. She's got God. And nothing can take that away. Such a greatest fear. What if it happens? You lose your job, you lose your reputation, whatever you're thinking, whatever your fear is. Dad never gives you the praise you were hoping he'd give you. What, think about what's your fear. What are you afraid of? But no one can take God from you if you have him, and that's the foundation. That's why you can fake all the other stuff, but you got to have this. I remember when I was struggling with anxiety. I remember one time CR coming out, and this lady came to me, and she, she was anxiety was her thing. It was a big-time problem for her, and she said, What do I do, Pastor? And I want, you know, you want to like, as a doctor, be like, hey, read this verse, you know, take this verse, call me in the morning, everything will be good. There's no formula for this. Here's what it is, trust God. When you fear God, you have no reason to fear anything else. Easy said, hard to do. fact, like we can talk about this woman for a long time. Hard to live it out though, isn't it? You can't understand why the lady was sitting on the second row in 2007, came to me and said, thanks for not preaching Proverbs 31. Because so many people think, I could never be that woman. I could never be a person like that. It's so intimidating. It's so hard. But let me remind you there's a real person here. It's Ruth. Unless you think this is only for super Christians, she's a Moabite convert. Came from a culture of worshiping, worshiping false gods. She's Cousin Eddie's kid. Okay, this is some of you think. Well, oh, the only kind of woman they'd be like, they be like—they studied the Bible since they were like three, and then they've been doing it their whole life, and now that they're, they're perfect and they never made a mistake, and they memorized basically the whole Old Testament, and they probably got a couple of verses from the New Testament too, and they're perfect. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about someone who walks by faith. That's the foundation, and then it's committed. The commitment comes from a commitment to God that then flows into every other relationship and every other area. And you see that love that he's demonstrated to her, demonstrated to others, a compassionate love, a courageous love. It's like Ruth. Ruth Moabite, cousin Eddie's kid. You know who she marries? The guy who says the words about her, that that you're a woman of noble character, like it says, who can find a woman of noble character? Who can find her? And it's said about Ruth in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 11. It's a man named Boaz. Do you know who Boaz is? Probably not. You can read about him in Matthew chapter 1. You see his genealogy. Do you know who his mom is? A woman named Rahab. Some of you might know the Bible. You might know who Rahab is. You might not. Let me tell you who Rahab is. She's a converted prostitute. Do you know what God does? Takes a converted prostitute. She has a son named Boaz. Boaz marries cousin Eddie's daughter. A Moabite woman. Who's showing Hesed? And you know what God does with them? He has them have a child that ends up being part of the line of David that brings Jesus to us. And so Boaz knows about second chances. He's a guy whose mom used to be a prostitute, who marries a woman living on second chances, converted to God. You can do this too. God's intentional when he gives the genealogy in Matthew, and it's intentionally scandalous. There's other people in there too, like Tamar. You can read about her on your own if you'd like. But what God's showing is this. Grace, 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 and it's by my power. And you know how this happens? It's the power of the gospel. You think, well, I could never be committed enough. You're right. I could never be courageous enough. You're right. But he gives you the power. That's why you have to have that foundation, which is the fear of the Lord. Let me go back to where we started. Verses 28 through 31. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many women do noble things. There's a lot of people who do good stuff. But you surpass them all. Why? Because you're so charming? Nope, charm is deceptive. Because you're so beautiful? Nope. Not that beauty's bad, but it's fleeting. What I'm talking about is a woman who fears the Lord. She is to be praised. This is a mom talking to her son, remember? Hey, sons, this is what you're looking for. Beauty's nice. Don't believe the charm. You want a woman who fears God. Give her the reward she has earned. Let her works bring her praise at the city gate. A woman who's committed, a woman who's courageous, a woman who's compassionate, all because she fears God. And let me tell you something, guys. This can feel like a day off for us, can't it? Mother's Day, I mean it's talking to the women. You gotta be a god, yeah, you should be a godly woman. You know? This applies to us too. It's not just about us helping our wives become this. It's not just about us finding women that are like this. It's not just about us praising women who are We should do all that. But most of the Proverbs are written, my son, my son, my son. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean on your understanding. You start picking Proverbs. A bunch of good Proverbs out there. They're written to young men. Does that mean they don't apply to women? Nope. This applies to us too. Maybe one of the reasons why these women are so rare is because they see so few examples from us men. And there's so few men that are willing to lead women to become this. Because we're cool with charm. We're cool with beauty. But what if we really called for a woman who fears that I want is a woman who fears the Lord. And let me show you what it looks like because I fear the Lord and I'm committed to him and I'm compassionate and caring and open-handed with my life and I am willing to be courageous and walk by faith and not be all stressed out about all this stuff in life because I fear God. So what do I have to fear about this stuff? Guys, you're called to this. Women that do this, I am so thankful you're part of our church. If you're not a woman who does this, I hope that this will call you to God's picture, his portrait of a godly woman. Let me pray for us. Father, I can think of women um, in our church who are this woman, and I thank you. I thank you for them. I thank you that they're here. I, I know women that are in the process of becoming like this woman, and I thank you that you're working the power of your grace that you're changing us. None of us have arrived. We're all a work in progress. We know that. God, will you continue to work? And I pray for our men, that you help our men to lead well, to value what you value. And God, help us to fear you and to love you with all that we are, with all of our hearts, our emotions, with all of our mind, intellectually, with all of our strength, and they would be expressed in the things that we do. And God, that we'd love other people, the people you bring into our paths, those in our family, our kids, those in our neighborhood, our neighbors, our coworkers, And God, I hope that we can be people like you describe here in this passage, and then you talk in the New Testament, that if we do, if they'll see our good deeds and they'll praise you, that you'd receive glory by the way that we live our lives. And I thank you for our women. I pray that they would be praised, that you would encourage them today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.